Welcome to another episode of What's at Stake, a Penta podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Christensen, and for today's discussion, we'll talk to my fellow partners and House leadership experts, Stacey Kerr and Kevin Madden, about the race for the next House Speaker. Stacey was a longtime advisor to Speaker Nancy Pelosi, while Kevin served in communications roles in House leadership, including for Tom DeLay and John Boehner, when they were both in majority leader positions. So in addition to hitting on some inside baseball House dynamics, we'll discuss the broader implications of the ousting of Speaker Kevin McCarthy, including its potential impact on the 2024 presidential election and America's broader global leadership. Things are moving fast. At the time of this recording, Tuesday afternoon, the Republican conference is sitting down to discuss having a new speaker agreed upon potentially by tomorrow. The two frontrunners are Rep. Jim Jordan and Rep. Steve Scalise, with McCarthy yet to announce his withdrawal from consideration. Stacey, let's start with you. How did we get here, and how long could it take to get a new speaker? Well, here we are another week in Washington in 2023, um, with, with implications for what this all means growing literally by the hour and by the day. I mean, I think if we were to have this conversation last week, some things were the same, and a couple of them have changed. And obviously, I know we'll get to the events, the global events, and and, and what that all means. But um, I know we've got a lot of clients who are asking us and a lot of conversations with our colleagues in Europe about what this all means. So I'll just remind us um, that it, at the start of this Congress of the House of Representatives in 2022, Republicans made a rule change, an internal rule change that said that any one member could bring a vote to the floor, essentially ousting the Speaker of the House. Now, the previous Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, and speakers before that had made sure that that rule was not in effect. So we started this new Congress, 2022, with a new dynamic, that any one member could bring bring forward a vote to oust the Speaker. We also had something that we had not seen historically, and that was, would it take 14 Kevin? 15. 15 votes for Kevin McCarthy to get the 218 votes to win. So we didn't really start this. We didn't have a Speaker of the House who started this Congress in a position of great strength to begin with. So what we saw happen, was that just last week, you guys? Yep. <laughs> Is uh, a member of the Republican caucus bring forward a vote, and the, uh, Kevin McCarthy lost the vote and lost the speakership. There was um, a very brief... Uh, moment where no one in Washington knew who the Speaker of the House was. We have an acting pro tem. Is it acting pro tem? We have an acting Speaker of the speaker House. Speaker pro tem, in, who's acting, right? In Patrick McHenry, whose responsibilities can are largely only to the jurisdiction of choosing a new Speaker. He does not have responsibility for legislative business and the business of the Congress. So finding ourselves in the in this sort of global. Um, dynamic global position without a functioning Speaker of the House makes all of this ever more um, really unknown. Yeah. And and Kevin, how long do you think it's going to take to get a new one? Well, first, I want to address something Stacy said, then I will absolutely get to your <laughs> question. Stacy's right. The main thing that is the main dynamic that, that everybody has to be aware of is so much of choosing a speaker and, and um, the process of running the House used to be ceremonial or predetermined, or just sort of... Um, it kind of happened behind closed doors, and then you knew what every, was going to happen yeah, when it came to the floor. Right. And now there's just a giant big X factor right now. Nobody really knows. So to answer your question directly, what's going to happen? We don't know. Um, I think, you know, 
usually, if you were a betting man. Well, usually what happens is you can see where there's an inevitable sort of cadence of activity that's going to take place. Like somebody is going to relent or somebody is eventually going to grind it out and get to a particular um, a vote or somebody is going to cut a deal. What we can't see right now is the exit ramp. There, right now, it's just this big, long, endless road where we really don't see what could happen next. And so we are more likely than not to have a protracted fight here for who would be the next speaker, and that we go through a very long process of watching this internal fight amongst Republicans sort of play out in public. Yeah, unless something happens, I think, here in literally the next 24 hours— uh, one of the th- we we are unlikely to see this resolved this week. Yeah, the I only right the only way this gets settled is if somebody relents and then throws their support in unity behind one candidate, and that would normally be what we would say is like that's you know the process that we are more likely to see. But in this case, even if that were to happen, say Scalise were to say, okay, I'm not going to be a speaker. I'm going to throw my support and try to have a unity ticket with Jim Jordan. It's not guaranteed, given how small the margins are, that even with that support, that you still don't have seven to eight holdouts from the moderate wing of the Republican Party that say, I'm not voting for Jim Jordan. I can't vote for Jim Jordan and go home and explain that to my constituents in my rather swing districty area of the country. And so as a result, we're right back where we started, which is the, you know, sort of tactical play to sort of try to bring unity that ultimately still can't get to 217, 218 votes where the where, 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 given where vacancies are, the, we'll, we'll, we'll use 218 for, uh, for the number. Majority. For, yeah. yeah, for the majority. So, but let me turn to this. So you both agree that we're looking at probably a protracted non-speaker uh, situation in the House. But what we saw over the weekend with Hamas's attack on Israel and the ensuing war, President Biden said in statements that Israel and the United States were inseparable partners. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal where he called for specific U.S. support, including potentially providing emergency appropriations. I mean, the challenge here is that without a speaker, House can't act, can't act on Israel, can't act on Ukraine. It can't even act on domestic issues, whether that's a resolution uh, condemning the attacks or even something like the farm bill. So does this new war increase the urgency in the Republican conference to put its differences aside and move forward? Yeah, unfortunately, Andrea, I'm not sure that that's going to even that is going to be enough to bring these factions together. I think Kevin mentioned a really important thing, and that is the size of these margins in the House. One dynamic um, to watch as to how this will get resolved and how the events in Israel come into this is that the election for a speaker has traditionally been a very inside game. It's members lining up their support, declaring their support for one candidate. And what we really see in this speaker's race and what we saw expedited with the events in Israel over the weekend is the outside play and the outside dynamics. Jim Jordan had been trying to use the um, use the media and use other um, outside factors to run his campaign and to pressure his members. And I think we are we are literally in real time now seeing what happened in Israel. How is that going to impact this sort of inside-outside dynamic? So the answer, my answer would be it should have an impact, but it will not. Because, I mean, what we have to realize right now is that we're operating with a governing body that has a majority party where 
96% of its members agree on one thing, but are being held up by 4%. And that 4% of the conference, the Republican conference right now, has an incredible amount of leverage because of the razor-thin margins that we have in the House. So um, they are not going to be motivated. If 96% of the conference is motivated saying, hey, we have a serious uh, national security issue with one of our allies, we have to act. All it takes is 4% to say, we're, that's not an urgent lever for us. That and is not an issue that's going to motivate us to, to sort of move quickly on this. And we're going to continue to have a protracted protracted sort of battle over this as a result. Yeah, and Andrea, I think as, as Kevin's saying, remember, one of the big fights that we'd seen over the last month before we saw them ousting Kevin McCarthy was a real debate over continued funding for Ukraine. So the connection of the continued funding for Ukraine while potentially now funding the Israel situation, that just increases the dynamics Kevin's talking about with where people stand on whether or not America should be um, uh, in- increasing our funding for, for both of these and these what, what are, are right. seeming to become interconnected. And we're seeing these fissures already take place. You see folks like Josh Hawley in the Senate saying like, hey, let's divert any of the funding that we had for Ukraine to our most important immediate ally facing the most dire threat, which is Israel. And that is not going to find enough support or enough votes. And as a result, we're right back where we started. We're having these incredibly long protracted intense debates inside the party and inside the institutions about where the votes are to approve something that used to be uh, more, not, not routine, but used to be something where, where there would be a rallying around the a flag effect of uh, both Democrats and Republicans, and you'd have larger coalitions that were there avail- that had available support for funding bills. And right now, we just do not have that. Yeah. And I mean, around the government shutdown, uh, President Biden had to go out and kind of reemphasize the United States commitment to Ukraine. But I think that there is going to be growing questions about that commitment the longer this speaker race drags out. Um, So for people outside the United States watching the U.S. right now, I mean, what should this speaker drama, for lack of a better word, you know, how they how should they think about it in terms of America's commitment to their glo- to our global priorities overall? Well, well remember, making a commitment is a, a little a little like the thoughts and prayers. You can put it on paper, but the way that the American system works is that they have to authorize the funding. Our Congress has to authorize the funding. So it does require more than just people's commitment. It actually requires both parties, both chambers the federal branch and the executive branch to come together. And that is really increasingly difficult to do in Washington. Yeah. And I think to your question, Andrea, there's real cause for concern. Like, should they be concerned? Yes. Um, And I think one of the things that is going to be required to really foster an international response that's unified. um, And I think this applies not only to Ukraine, but also to Israel. uh, there's there's a, still a lot of work to be done. What we want to see, you want to see stability. You want to see uni, you want to see a un, unified voice coming out of our government, both at the legislative level and as well as the, the executive level. And right now, that is a very very tall task. So there is call, cause for concern. I think this is also a huge opportunity for folks who come from the governing wing of both parties. We know that there's a performative wing on the Democratic side. We know there's a performative wing, an, you know, an outrage wing on the Republican side. 
But in the big middle of the American electorate and in the big middle of our governing institutions, the Senate and the House, there are people who are very serious about America's place in the world and the importance of demonstrating unified leadership. And it's time for those people to really step up and make the case because political coalitions don't come together on their own. Um, the public support for uh greater stability and a unified force don't come together just on their own. It really does require leaders to step up and to really make a clear and convincing case to the American public and then build the coalitions inside the legislative uh, legislative institutions in order to do that. And Andrea, you introduced us as having expertise in the politics of the House. Thankfully, you didn't ex- introduce us of expertise in foreign policy. But one thing I think everyone is concerned with in Washington is that our America's global adversaries are watching very closely what is happening inside these factions of American, and and people smarter than us can tell us whether to, whether or not times of dysfunction or um, uh, disunity in the American system are exploited by our enemies. Thanks, Stacey. And with that, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. We'll be back to talk more about what's coming next for the race for speaker. Penta is the world's first comprehensive stakeholder solutions firm. We are a one-stop shop for the intelligence and strategy leaders need to assess a company's reputation and make decisions that improve their positioning. As executives in the C-suite must account for a growing set of engaged stakeholders, all with distinct, fast-changing demands, Penta provides real-time intelligence and strategy solutions. We work with clients solving complex global challenges across a variety of industries. Our clients span technology, financial services, energy, healthcare, and more. To learn more about how Penta can support your company, check out our website at pentagroup.co, our Twitter at pentagrp, or find us on LinkedIn at pentagroup. Welcome back to What's at Stake, a Penta podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Christensen, and I'm here with Kevin Madden and Stacey Kerr as they talk about what we know and don't know about who will be the next Speaker of the House. Much more about what we don't know than what we do know. (laughs) Exactly. So, Kevin, you worked for then-Majority Leader Tom DeLay at a time when the Majority Leader was called on to deliver the votes. So when you think about the strife within the Republican Conference, is this the beginning of the end of the more recent era of strong Speaker? Well, I don't think I don't think so. No, I think, look, every speaker is different and every majority is built differently. They all have different characteristics. I think also there's differences between the parties. If you look at Republicans and who they've elected speaker and how they've managed the leadership structure, they uh, have had um, a much more um, dispersed levels of power between the between the, the speaker and the majority leader and the majority whip. So take, for example, Denny Haster. Denny Haster was not a very strong speaker, even though you, we, we're, we're, what we're saying is that we're operating in a strong, strong speaker era. He had more power, was concentrated in the majority leader's office than when Nancy Pelosi was speaker, where there was a great concentration of power in the speaker, and the majority leader was called on almost as an almost like an Uber whip uh, during um, to, in order to sort of manage floor operations. Um, so I think it all has to do, to answer your question more more uh, comprehensively, I think it all depends on who the leader is. Nancy Pelosi had a very firm idea of how to wield power with a concentrated level of constitutional power. Danny Haster managed different levels of power al- along with others who had 
a more enhanced role in the leadership structure of the House. So it was very different. They also had different majorities. And um, the size of their majorities oftentimes is um, directly proportional to how strong a speaker will be. It's simple as that. It's a majority-run, consensus-run um, uh, institution. I will note that Nancy Pelosi ran the the last in her last run here as speaker. She had a a, a very very small majority. So to your point, and I, Kevin, yeah, and she I had think, a lot of experience of having already been speaker before that yes. too, and I think that really helped her. Yes. Yeah, and, and Stacey, you advised Speaker Pelosi for over a decade, and she is arguably the most powerful speaker in modern history. So, I mean, what what do you think the Republican conference could learn? I, I mean, and far be it for, from from Republicans to take it advice on this, but I think the biggest difference is that Nancy Pelosi believed that the party's unity was its strength. And I think the fundamental difference to this Republican majority right now is that they actually believe that their strength comes from the divisions within the party. I mean, I think we, we saw Donald Trump win the presidency on a, a principle of division. And I think Nancy Pelosi was able to, both behind the scenes, give the members what they needed to come together, even when they didn't agree, to have that unity position. And to there was a lot of educating off of TV screens, outside of TV cameras, of members of Congress, of the benefits of them coming together and being unified. And I think she had the opportunity to show them with both the way she negotiated for them with the president, whether that was a Republican president or a Democrat president, the value of that um, that that unity. Two other key things, I think. The two most effective House leaders in the modern era have been Nancy Pelosi and Tom DeLay. Both of them at one point were had served as whips, which means that they were the ones responsible for getting the votes, counting the votes, growing the votes when a bill uh, or a legislative priority hit the floor. The encyclopedic knowledge that they had of everybody's district and the encyclopedic knowledge that they had of members and what was going to motivate a member to join the majority was a huge, huge and powerful um, uh, thing. The other thing is they both governed their majorities through the moderates. They knew that the way that they were going to return a speaker or return to a majority was that you make sure that you provide the political cover for the moderates so that they go home and in tough races – Republicans win instead of Democrats, or in Nancy Pelosi's case, Democrats win instead of Republicans in these majority maker seats, the the swing areas around metropolitan areas in somewhat purple states all around the country. Nancy Pelosi sort of uh, famously would tell members of Congress, you do what you need to do to win your district. You do know what you need to do to win your district. What's the and line from House of Cards? Vote your district, vote your conscience. Don't surprise me. Well, I would I would say that Kevin McCarthy was the whip. So. Kevin McCarthy knew how to build, knew how to do this on the election side, but he really did, one of the one of the keys to his downfall was how much he had tuned in his majority. Or I'm sorry, tuned in his his majority to and his speakership to turning over power to a very yeah. small faction of ultra-conservative um, members. I think there are a number of us who've worked in the modern House of Representatives and for speakers like like uh, in leadership like Kevin and I have who believe that this was just a matter of time. Once you gave up that vote and it took 14, 15 votes to get to 218, I mean, 
People would the ne- second- Nancy Pelosi would never bring anything to the floor without having the votes, let alone her own speaker. The analogy I used was the second that he agreed to the motion to vacate by one member, that was the equivalent of a, a parents having a Ferrari in the garage and going away on vacation and telling their kids, don't take it out for a drive. It was not a speakership. Obviously, as we've seen now, is not a speakership worth having if you couldn't manage your way through a one year in the job. Somebody was going to take that motion to vacate out for a ride and crash it, and they did. And it was Matt Gates. I think it's a really important point, though, to remember that part of what we're literally in this hour today watching is that there's an internal conversation in within the Republican conference as to whether or not they will get rid of that rule for the next speakership. If you don't, you might as well, whoever whoever becomes speaker, turn the egg timer on right then and there because their time is limited. Yeah. And the last point I'll make on this, Andrea, I think it's really, I think we've seen not only the geopolitical, but even just the domestic, political and economic, di- the dynamics in our landscapes really make it hard to see how that's not going to we're just not we're not going to just repeat the same thing again, as Kevin's saying. I'll pivot quickly to the government shutdown, um, but I will come back to get both of yours point of view on how we can move forward and achieve a governable house, at least until the next election. But we punted the government shutdown for 45 days, um, which is what led to Speaker McCarthy's ouster uh, initially. And so we're now slated to run out of money again just before Thanksgiving. Um do we have a government shutdown in November? I would predict that we do. I just, again, I go back to my earlier comments. Usually with these, I can see an exit ramp off in the distance on the long highway. I just fail to see an exit ramp right now before we get to that 45-day deadline. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't I don't think there's enough, a big enough number of um, Republicans who think the importance of a functioning government is actually what they all came here to do. And so they're going to use that leverage in any way possible to be a holdout and get something in return for it or to say, well, I dare you. And just to, to make sure that they're, they're, um, you know, getting what they want. There's just very few motivating factors towards unity right now. I mean, we're not having it with the most recent crisis that we had where we actually vacated a speaker. We have a global national security foreign policy emergency right now, and we're not seeing any additional quick movement towards a solution or a rally around the flag effect. And so what will it take? Is a government shutdown, which we've got, everybody's everybody's lived through a government shutdown. Is that really gonna be a motivating factor right now? The fact that the government might shut down? We've seen that that hasn't been a motivating factor previously. So it's just hard for me to see how it all comes yeah. together and to get 218 votes in the House and a unified sort of agreement between the House and the Senate on funding levels before the deadline hits. All right. Can we end on a high note somehow? (laughs) Well, we'll think about it. We're going to move to the 2024 presidential race and whether and how. um, So further descent into (laughs) Well, it's just, does this impact the race for 2024, specifically the Republican primary? Yes or no? The titular head of the Republican Party, um, Donald Trump, is still the one that has the owns the messaging arc of this party right now. And um, most of the candidates that are even competing against him, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott, whoever it is out there, none of them really want to confront the sort of base of the party on um, this. And the base of the party right now, uh, in their view, is probably aligned with those that removed Kevin McCarthy from the speakership. 
So I just don't see right now a huge appetite to make the speaker fight or some of the dysfunction in the house an issue that they think they can use to their advantage. I think most of those campaigns are going to focus on issues that are directly related to Iowa, New Hampshire, try to continue to make um, progress against Donald Trump. But um, I just don't see it being a huge factor in the 2024 presidential race right now. Yeah, we we um, I actually think this this <laughs> brings sort of the question of Biden's leadership really back into to question. And, you know, foreign policy is a strength for Joe Biden. It's I an alleged we're strength. See, and we're going to see and we're going to see, um, you know, our 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 Penta colleague and our, our president, Penta, uh, Matt McDonald, actually had a really thoughtful piece in The Wall Street Journal over the weekend in which he called this, I think, didn't he call it a dual referendum mm-hmm. election in which case we have two known people, right, Joe Biden and and Donald Trump, which hasn't happened since like the late 1800s. And I think that this will be a really, really important time for Joe Biden to navigate through the global, not not domestically what's happening in the House of Representatives, but the, the global crisis that we see. And I think that may have as much of an impact on what happens in 2024 as what happens in the House of Representatives. Well, here's what I think is key on this. I think national security and foreign policy events that drive, uh, start to shape political campaigns, they're usually to the advantage of the incumbent, uh, the incumbent president, because you have an opportunity to sort of unify the party and to um, really seize global stage and and demonstrate American leadership. The thing that would worry me if I were in the Biden White House right now is that immediately you saw reflexive partisanship take over and people start criticizing the White House response or lack of a response or slow response to these to this crisis. They've already sort of lost the momentum, I think, on the Ukraine funding issue. And so as a result, it's a little bit more muddled than it usually would be for a for a uh, an incumbent president on the national security and foreign policy issues. So and then the other thing is the Trump usually is always on the attack yes. when it comes to this stuff. And that going on the attack and also not bearing the responsibility of having to make any policy decisions, it could, I think, start to, um, it, I think it's going to sort of really open up a, a very broader, a much more broader debate uh, in the 2024 cycle. And the thing that Trump has to his advantage is he just has to be the alternative. And I say this as somebody who's been pretty critical of his national security and foreign policy credentials yeah. but, and approach. But do you guys, Andrea, I'm curious your take on this too. Do you guys think, like, can Trump stay quiet right now with with what's going on in the world? And, you can never stay and Trump how, quiet on anything. And how no. that will impact? No. Don't you think Trump's going to take this and, and, and try to insert himself into what's going on yeah. in the, in the not just in the world, but in, in the Republican? All I see is opportunity for my girl, Nikki Haley. I think that's right. No, I think there is some opportunity there. It's like how great of an opportunity is it, though? But the thing is, is there's an old saying from the from the again from the show House of Cards: P- uh, public opinion doesn't have a law degree. Um, public opinion also are they're not foreign policy experts. What they do respond to are strength, clarity, re- resolve. And I think w- one thing I would always say about Trump: I totally criticize him on the substance. He speaks in a way that that sort of gives people the veneer that he's being strong and being tough on enemies around the globe. And I think that's one of the things that I'm going to be watching for in the dynamic over how the public as an electorate responds in the next few days and weeks here. So uh, I'm going to take us back to kind of what's happening in the House. Um, 
And Kevin, you asked if we could end on a high note, so I'm going to leave that up to you, too. Um, so what needs to happen to achieve a governable House? And what's your prediction on who will become the next speaker? I don't know, and I don't know. <laughs> I don't think that there's a, a, a... I think there's a growing chance that we might see some change in the rules that allows Patrick McHenry to get us through where we need to go in the next month and kick this whole thing. I, I, yeah, and I think that's possible. There's going to be, that's going to open up a ton of legal questions and a lot of resistance as well. Uh, I think um, Patrick McHenry has some support in the House for sure. He's seen as a very strong, capable member. But there's also a lot of people that are resistant to the idea of McHenry taking over in a, in a position that he wasn't elected to. So, I just, as far as I can see, I see a very protracted debate that I think is going to ultimately, I think time is going to grind everybody down to a, some, some, some level of solution. And that's, that means this is going to take longer versus uh, shorter. I'll, yeah. I'll end us on a high that we should all remember that there are still institutionalists in the House of Representatives, and we are in unprecedented times, who will be um, looking, and I think are talking. Are there two hundred eighteen the of them? And they're t- talking to the parliamentarian, and they're <laughs> looking for any way for us, though, in this moment, yeah. to give our allies around the world the support that they need, and to ensure this that what's happening internally is not affected by that. All right. Well, Stacey and Kevin, thank you for joining us. Thank on this you, episode. Andrea. Uh, appreciate your commentary. Thank you to our listeners. Uh, I'm sure we'll be back when there is some other news to discuss. Have a great day. Look forward to it. <laughs>